Sardar Tunçer and I'm a master's student in human-computer interaction. Today, we are very excited to have with us on our AI show podcast, Carlton's very own Dr. Tracy Lorio. Dr. Lorio is an associate professor of critical media and big data for the Institute for Data Science at Carlton University. She is a scholar in critical data studies working on open data, big data, open smart cities, open government, data preservation, and data governance. Her ongoing research includes digital twins, intersectional approach to data governance, data visibilities, and the history of the census. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much. And I just want to clarify one little thing. I, I, my employment is with the School of Journalism and Communication, but I am on the advisory committee for the Institute for Data Science. Thank you for this. Thank you for You're joining very us welcome. Today. It's okay. It's a lot of titles <laughs> roaming back and forth. Very good. It's really nice to see you today, Sudar, and to be on your podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. I know, as you mentioned, you are working on several projects involving critical data studies at Carlton. And mm-hmm. as such, these projects also deeply affect artificial intelligence studies. So before we start, can you define what critical data studies are and how might that field of study be related to AI, most especially trusted AI? Okay, so critical data studies is a new and emerging field. There are not that many people in the world who are doing it. There's, I think right now, only four posts that officially have that title in it. Uh, And mine was the first here at Carleton University. And essentially what critical data studies scholars do, the, the briefest definition is, is that we do uh, critical, social, theoretical research about quantitative culture. So we would study quantitative culture. Also, having said that, generally speaking, that most people who do critical data studies accept that data are more than how they're generally technically defined, that data are actually cultural, social artifacts, that ought to be scrutinized. They are never politically neutral, unbiased and objective. They are, and they are never inseparable from the institutions, from the practices, from the, 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 the legal context, uh, the organizational context and the people that work with them or within which they are situated. And so you have the technical aspects of data, but even technical decisions are political decisions. Are your data in an open format or a closed format? Are they part of an open data program? Then it becomes political and it becomes maybe a little bit ideological. Uh, Is it open source code or proprietary source code in the background? How are they governed? Who owns them? Who buys them? Who sells them? So data also have a political economy. Uh, They have a market. Um, and they are also have a lot of value in them, depending on how you assess values. And they are not necessarily all digital. Data can be uh, old school data that you find in old statistical manuals, and they can be data that are born digital. They can be real-time data. They can be structured. They can be unstructured. There's many kinds of data. Regardless of the types of data, they are never politically neutral, unbiased, and completely objective. And so just having a little drink. 
<laughs> and then a little cough after the drink. Uh, and so what people like me do generally is when we come to look at data with that perspective, and then we try to understand their assemblages. Where do they fit in? What kind of system are they situated in to better understand the, either the politics or the governmentalities or those types of issues or the legal issues of it, or in the context of some of the work that I'm doing that you are involved with, the digital twin, we often look, we want to look at things like data governance. And to look at data governance, we need to ask these specific kinds of questions as well. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to trustworthy or trusted AI, in fact, one of these projects, um, as you mentioned, uh, archives of 4.0 artificial intelligence for trust in records and archives. Yes. Could you tell us a bit more about this project? Absolutely. And so maybe to step back for a sec, the construct of trust, because I didn't answer the construct of trust for you. Trust in data is very tricky and it's very contingent on, again, on the context. Are the data accurate? Are the data reliable? Are the data valid? Are they what they purport to be? So are they what, you know, once they've gone through, let's say, transferred from one organization to another, are they the exact same data? Are they authentic data? Is there an authority around these data? Is the methodology and the approach by which these data were constructed accurate and reliable and, and, um, and scientifically valid? Uh, when you look at them, so for instance, if we think of uh, artificial intelligence and we think of data, one of the big issues is classification systems because data are classified and they are aggregated. And so someone like myself, a critical data studies scholars, race scholars, many disability scholars, uh, people who do elder care studies, we're all looking at things called classification systems when it comes to data, particularly about vulnerable people. For instance, classification systems related to race are dubious at best because race actually doesn't exist gen genetically, but racism does exist. So does it make sense to, to, to have race as an independent variable, for example, or does it make sense to look at issues from an intersectional perspective to better understand racism and racism, let's say in housing or racism, systemic racism in terms of employment or even namespaces, for example. Um, for instance, you know, gendered names will, you know, we've seen many stories where uh, women will be directed towards particular one particular kind of job uh, and men will be directed to different kinds of jobs simply because of first names and last names. Facial recognition technology doesn't recognize people with dark skin and is particularly terrible at recognizing people with uh, dark skin who are women, even worse, because there aren't very good training data sets for them. Uh, and then, of course, you know, so the quality of the data, but also the context within which the data are collected. So if we think of a predictive policing system, for example, let's say we're in a United States city, whatever city we want, that has a paramilitary police force that happens to uh, require uh, the source of its funding comes from uh, stopping cars for ridiculous stops and we see a tremendous amount of stop stopping cars of mostly people who are black for instance or other ethnocultural visible minorities they will overrepresented in that police forces database simply because they have a practice of the more tickets they get the more money they get 
the more the people that they ticket the most happen to be people of color and that's who's going to be or the people that they stop and frisk on the street will be people of color which means this group of people whether they've done something or not are now in the database they will be overrepresented in the database and the database no matter what will be informed if you wet or fed those data and continuously output an overrepresentation of that group of people so in that case, the data are about stop and frisk or about car stops, but they were also in a racist setting and a political economy where ticketing people results in you generating revenue for your police force. Okay, so, so those are some of the issues that people like me might look at. And so when it comes to artificial intelligence and trust in the archives, trust takes on a different type of definition in the archives. So archives is about the preservation of data Primarily, instead of data, though, really what archivists call them is they call them records, things that you use and you set as upon which you make decisions that you set aside uh, after the course of their business has expired. So, for example, your registration material at Carleton University, my human resources file at Carleton University, your driver's license might be a kind of record that the state has to keep. And it will always have it on its records. That's a record. And those records can be translated into data, a unique ID, a phone number, an address, whatever, biometric information about you, et cetera, et cetera. Those particular kinds of data, because they're going into an archive, they need to be authoritative and they need to be trusted and they need to be kept in such a way that they have integrity across time and space within an archive. But what does it look like when you receive, let's say an archives and some of the projects that are coming into the, to the project, uh, what if an archives receives from a donor, someone or some kind of recipient receives 200,000 photos and there are no metadata or catalogs associated with those photos, but we know that they're important for who knows, human rights collection and indigenous connection or something. It could be videos of old languages. Right. So let's say you get 700 videos of all languages. How are you to process those data? It's very, very difficult to process those data by a human. Can you use artificial intelligence to process the images to generate some metadata? It's possible for some things, but you're still going to have to have some kind of human intervention. And so the questions for archivists is what aspects of artificial intelligence can we use in different ways to help us to archive these materials? So that's one question that archivists might have, but also not to only just to archive them, but to label them and to recognize them. You know, can we take, can we, let's say out of that example of many photographs of let's say, I don't know, indigenous people across time, historical photos, can we create a training data set from those existing photos and label and test and see how well we're doing in terms of being able to generate you know, 10,000 labels. If it's a video of archaic languages, is there, and, and let's say, you know, one, one of the scholars, uh, one of the PIs on the project, for instance, Mohammed, is looking at um, uh, Arabic languages and videos. And what he's interested in is all the dialects. Because in, in Arab languages, there's multiple dialects in all these different regions, and some of the dialects are much older. So if you receive 700 videos that are 25 minutes long each of people from, let's say, refugee camps that are traveling around all over the place from interviews, is there a way that you can do language and pattern recognition of the language to automatically transcribe the texts? 
for example, in a way that's very accurate so that then you can create metadata and then you can input the both of those objects into the archives. So they're labeled, they're cataloged and so on. On other instances, and then how can you trust those? Are they true? Is this valid way of doing it? Another one is uh, search and retrieval or natural language processing could be used to, to navigate the archives better because usually archives, they're set up for archivists or they're set up for researchers. So searching them is very, very difficult, actually. Most, if you go to a Library Archives Canada, you really need a lot of time to be able to confidently search that, that big repository of knowledge and records. And so natural language processing might be another way of doing so, but then you need to tag those records. So in all the, or, you know, I'll give you one last example. If we think of a digital twin, for example, which is a very complex artifact with lots of data coming in, it's very large and it's, and it's proprietary and non-proprietary. And it's very difficult when you're creating a big complicated artifact to do all of the archival metadata or archival standardizations packages to bring it into the archives. Because when you bring something into a digital archives, you have to do all this tagging of these objects so that the, the integrity of the object can travel through the archive for the next hundred years, even though there's digital transformation across time. And so how could you design something now with the creators so that you can create those packages, but could you also use uh, you know, the standard that is used, the OAIS standard in archives, and could you create some kind of artificial intelligence or machine learning package that will look at the artifact, learn from the artifact, put the necessary packages and standards and all of these things that are required for archival purposes around it, and then test and assess the integrity of that object. That could be another way that it could be used in the archives. So there's so many different ways of using artificial intelligence in the archives. And the question is, our questions are, what is the best way to do it? And archives, one of the great things about archives is we are supposed to trust them. We don't have to like the information that's in them. It could be racist information. It could be sexist information. It could be a Nazi archive for all we know. What we care about, right, is that the records are there. So think of the Stasi records. Um, right, that were really important in Eastern Germany when those archives open, is that they're accurate, that they're reliable, that you can retrieve them, because people go back to those, those archives to look for their families, for example, that nobody has tampered with the archives, right, that nobody's taken documents out of the archives. So how can AI help with that process? We don't have the answers yet, but we are certainly looking at different ways of thinking of the uses of AI and machine learning in the archives to either ingest material into the archives or to manage material in the archives or to do some recognition of large sets of records. Think of even like to go back to the Arab language studies. What if we brought in a lot of historical written texts, right? It's very, very difficult after OCR scanning to ensure that all has been transcribed exactly as they are on the documents. But if you have hundreds of thousands of these documents, it's not possible for a human to do that. So can you use AI and machine learning to do that? And how accurate, how reliable, and how trustworthy is are the outputs of that? So that's kind of some of the questions that are being asked in that project. And, and it's very, very exciting work. Yeah, great. Uh, definitely, it will be very interesting to see the outcome of this project, project for sure. Um, 
Another project, actually, I have the pleasure of working with you as a research assistant is Imagining Canada's Digital Twins um, New Frontier in Research Project. Yes, uh, that's hard <laughs> to say, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Could you also tell our listeners about this project? So digital twins are very interesting. I'm not the lead of that project. Uh, Professor Stephen Fai in uh, architecture and engineering is. And he's the lead of the Carleton University Immersive Media Studios at Carleton. And he is the primary investigator on that project. And I'm a co-applicant along with uh, Alex Ramirez and Tessa Heb and myself, Trace Lorio. And what we're trying to look at is, can we imagine a digital twin for all of Canada? And of course we can imagine it, but what might it look like? What should it be? Who should participate? Uh, who should it be aimed and targeted at? How should it be paid for? How can it be sustained? How do we bring in data from all kinds of different sources into it? And who ought to have the rights to access those data? And what are the rights and the responsibilities over all of those data? How they should be governed? What software should we be using? What kind of platforms ought we be using? Should we be platform agnostic and allow everything to come in? What would be the data model? So, you know, to step back though, because I'm sure not all your listeners know what a digital twin is. A digital twin and the most basic definition that I have, I, I like the most basic definitions because they're the best and they're the worst at the same time. Uh, but sometimes they're easier to grasp. If we think of something physical in the real world, a building, with its windows and its doors and its elevators and its lights and, and its plugs and uh, its internet and all of its different units and utilities and furnaces and all that kind of stuff. So the whole building as it is might be one big artifact, complex artifact with some real-time data coming in and out of it. So that might be a thing in the real world, a building and all of its goodies, all of its material things. And then a digital replica of that building. So a 3D digital replica of that building. And then the digital twin is not just the replica, it's the replica actually speaking to the material and the material speaking to the replica. So for example, if we think of a heating system, uh, could we manage the heat remotely for each unit without having to adjust the heat uh, individually? Could it be adjusted simply by using an artificial intelligence or machine learning system and sensors, of course, so Internet of Things types of sensors that will read humidity levels, temperature levels, sun angles, number of people in the room and so on, and immediately adjust the temperature of the room to 21. So if there's nobody in the room and it's nighttime, then maybe it's very low to save on energy. And if it's the daytime and it's the summer and it's very hot and there's two or three people in the unit and the sun is shining right in, then maybe the air conditioning needs to be turned up or maybe the blinds need to be closed, something like that. So it's a kind of a combination of smart technologies, if you will, and digital twin technologies. But it's also, it will, you know, the digital twin contains a, a database, if you will, of all of the objects in a building. So normally buildings have to be repaired and certain things wear out faster than others. So maybe all the windows in a building need to be repaired in 20 years. And so we have all the measurements and all the standards and what needs to be done. And in 20 years, we get a trigger or actually in 15 years, we get a trigger from the digital twin that says, hey, time to upgrade the windows. Here's the information. Here's the estimate of how many you need, whatever. So that's a very, very simple, basic example. But imagining a Canada digital twin would mean all the buildings, 
all the roads, all the utilities, all the parks, all the land coverages, all the building footprints of whatever structure it might be, other infrastructure, bridges, electrical utility systems, and so on. The entire, the entire grid for the country, different communities, demographic data, um, data about uh, topography, where the mountains are, where the valleys are, hydrography, where the water is. And so in a way, I always consider them to be analogous to spatial data infrastructures or spatial data. All of these data seamlessly coming together in one big digital replica with multiple contributors. So different levels of government might have their building assets in this digital twin. And that would be federal government, all the provincial territorial governments, and maybe all the cities and counties and small towns. Could be First Nations communities putting their assets in there. And then the big part of the digital twin that's the most important that I didn't include in my original definition, and I will now, is the people, the organizations and the institutions and the context. Because people will have to manage this, people will have to contribute to this. Institutions are the institutions that collect these types of data. Could be a building owner, it could be a city, could be a project, it could be a building management organization, whatever, they all own bits and pieces of these things and they contribute to these data that we can collectively use to maybe model climate change issues. Uh, we could do climate modeling at a micro, meso and macro scale. We could do an inventory of how much pavement is there in all of Canada how much pavement is used more, how many surfaces are used more than others, and what would happen if we lightened the color of the asphalt and changed the materials? Would it have less of a heating effect in the winter and a better melt effect in the, uh, a better heating effect, uh, a lesser heating effect in the summer and a better melt effect in the winter so that we can actually instead of having really hot temperatures in the city as a result of black asphalt absorbing all of the heat, for example. What does it mean to replace all this asphalt? What would it mean to remodel the country's transportation system to have better intermodal and interregional and multimodal transportation and shared transportation, for example? What would it look, could we have autonomous vehicles? And if we had autonomous vehicles, could we reduce road traffic? And could we reduce reliance on some roads and where would we put those things? What happens if we, excuse me, put five or six buildings, uh, you know, let's say on Preston Street, like what's happening right now in the city of Ottawa, and we could model the effects of traffic, of transportation, of the requirements for uh, water and plumbing, the requirement maybe for public transportation, and all of these other things, more schools, all of these kind of scenario planning, but also it could also be used for emergency services planning or the effects of climate change. So coastal watch, fires, uh, and all of this other types of emergency preparedness and hopefully prevention type of activities. So digital twin sounds nice and easy in its most basic definition, but it's actually very, very complex. Within all of that, there's a tremendous amount of data. So how would you search those data? How would you tag those data? How could you have, how could you put parameters for a model, for instance, and could you use the parameters of a scenario uh, or a model, if you will, and have that in a machine learning artificial kind of context? How could you query it? How could you move it? How could you attest to make sure that, the, that, the, that no one has tampered with it? Because if we rely on this for infrastructural planning, for instance, we need to make sure that this model is, has integrity, that nobody has tampered with it, that it has stayed the same. How do you manage updates and how do you keep the history of those updates across time? 
So artificial intelligence and machine learning could be very useful for that. And it could be just very useful for the very simple thing of managing a building asset. So there's all kinds of really interesting artificial intelligence and machine application possibilities and opportunities when it comes to a digital twin. Awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> perfect. Uh, for students, for students interested in AI, could you provide just one piece of advice? What would you recommend for future AI researchers from a critical data perspective? So any AI researcher worth their weight in gold or salt, depending on the metaphor you want to use, ought to always work with experts in their context. So you will become the AI expert, but you might not be the expert in racism. If you are, I'm sad because it probably means you've experienced it, but, but you know, in, you might not be a sociologist, but you might have AI expertise or data science expertise. But AI and data science technical expertise is not enough. You need to work with sociologists or anthropologists or architects or urban planners to understand their context. You need to also accept that uh, much of the data that you will get access to, you will have to very carefully scrutinize those data and unpack those data to be sure that they're accurate as possible, as reliable as possible and fit for purpose. Uh, many people just get data and they're really happy to get data, but they don't really assess whether it's fit purpose, fit for purpose for the research question or the problem or the challenge that needs to be addressed. And then of course, design your systems in such a way that they can be auditable and verifiable uh, because there is an increase in demand and there's increasing in laws and regulation and public policy that is going to say, I as a public servant in any organization will ask that when I procure your services from you know, AI machine learning services or products, whatever they may be, that I will have the right to look at your formulas and your algorithms, that you will be able to demonstrate to me how they work, and that there is a way to audit the output of those AI and machine learning systems over the long run and continuously verify them. So they need to be verifiable to ensure that they do what they're supposed to do. And if they change, that they're changing in the right direction, that they're not changing to create some swearing nasty robot as we've seen in some previous examples, right? The classic examples that come up. But in other words, that means that you need to be a good technological citizen and you need to recognize that you will probably not have all of the answers even though you're very technologically powerful. The other thing I would say is you need to be humble. You need to be humble that you may have technological prowess and sometimes when you're talking with people who are not as technical as you, you need to listen to their concerns very carefully, even though they can't articulate to you on your own technical terms, they may have very specific requirements that are fundamental in how you design. And that comes with humbleness of a scientist and the humbleness of, of a good practitioner. So that was more than one piece of advice, but I think they, they all come together on being cause no harm, do much good, make sure we can check and verify and validate what it is that you do and work with other people and always check your ego at the door and be humble and test everything that you do. All of them are awesome. Mm -hmm. um, we appreciate all the advice and information you provided us today, Professor. Thank, Thank you, you very much. It was really <laughs> great talking.
talking to you. Thank you for helping make the world a better place. Thank you. Little bit at a time. You too, though, Sadar. That's why you're doing these podcasts. So between you and I, we're doing that. And I'm sure your classmates are doing the same. Thank you very much. Thank you. All the best. And we'll see you soon. Thank you.